Well, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're halfway through our sermon series in the Gospel according to Mark. And we get to look at a historical account today. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows. You could ask somebody to pass it down, or you could look it up online. We'll just assume that you, if you're looking at your phone that you're reading the Bible. And we come to this uh, story today, this historical account of another miracle that Jesus performs. Uh, but we also encounter one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's a short one, so everybody can memorize it. It goes like this. I believe... Help my unbelief. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and I believe in God's perfect providential plan that he's, and I didn't even realize it, that he's put this passage right before us on the three-year anniversary of this church. Because along the way, there, has been, there have been so many times where I both believed that God could and would build his church here in Seattle, in the neighborhood of Wallingford, but you know what? I also had lots of unbelief, and I had to pray, God, help my unbelief, and we've been doing that for three years, and so this becomes almost a perfect picture of who we want to be as a community. It's a picture of a a father uh, who, out of love for his son, brings his son to Jesus as a last resort. He's at the end of his rope. He's desperate. He has no other recourse, and he brings his son and his own fear into the presence of Jesus, into a public gathering of people who have come to hear Jesus speak, to listen to Jesus, and he comes. And so this is actually a picture of who and why we started this church. We want to be a place where anyone, when they've come to the end of their rope, when they've tried all other possible Ways to feel fulfilled and full in this life, and they come and they realize they're exhausted, and all options are exhausted. And we ask them a simple yet profound question Have you considered Jesus? And Jesus is perfectly all right with us coming to Him in that moment. He doesn't say, Well, why didn't you think to come to me first? Or why did you come to me and then try something else and then come back? He doesn't care. He just wants you to come listen to the life he has to offer. And this is how most people in this church and in churches all over this globe have come to Jesus. Have you considered Jesus? Maybe today you've come back to consider him again anew. Maybe it's your first time. We're glad that you're here. This is a man who shaped the world unlike anyone else, and he's worth considering. So, that's what we'll do today. In this space, at this time, we are going to step out of the center of our universe and acknowledge that perhaps something else needs to be in the center. That perhaps we are not the center of all knowledge and wisdom and truth. That maybe we need to step out and ask, does something else belong there? This is the mission of our church. This is what we've been trying to do for the last 
three years. This is what I've been commissioned by God to ask people to do for, for almost 11 years now to help people consider Jesus. And, and if you want to know a little bit more about the history of our church, we've got these little vision booklets um, that I mentioned earlier. They're over on the connect table right over here. And um, just to kind of get you up to speed, because every time we do a big anniversary, I like to share how we got here. It was 11 years ago, or it will be 11 years on March 17th, that, that I got a phone call, and the phone call was from my father saying that my older sister Kim had been killed in a bicycling accident. And I walked into this back alley, and it was in that alley 25 minutes later, after every unbelief and doubt, every fear came upon me, and I was exhausted that God delivered to me the consider message. And he asked me to ask her friends to consider, and I shared that message for the first time at her memorial service, and God has continued to prompt me to share time and time again. But my consideration came not out of a place of profound knowledge or wisdom or energy, but a place of exhaustion and fear and unbelief. Everything was shaken, and that's when I realized Jesus was most real. It was scary, and it continues to be scary, but it's continued to be worth it. So let's read together this story about another man who was scared to death, but in his moment of exhaustion, his moment of fear, his moment of unbelief, he opens himself up to the presence and power of Jesus to believe. So Mark 9, starting in verse 14, is where we are going to be. It says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Now, just to set the stage here for you, uh, we talked about this last week. Jesus had taken three of the disciples up to a mountain and he had revealed his true glory to them. It's known as the transfiguration. So these three disciples and Jesus are coming down from the mountain and they see the other disciples and the other disciples are arguing with the scribes and the scribes were these group of religious elites that had probably come from Jerusalem to spy on, excuse me, to spy on Jesus, to kind of catch him, uh, in his own work and words and, and find a way potentially to arrest him and keep him from doing the work that he had been doing. And so the disciples that are left behind are arguing with the scribes. Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, coming, coming into the town, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that has made him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So this is the scene. 
the disciples who were left behind, are trying to cast out an unclean spirit. And this is something that they had done before, successfully. Jesus had sent them out with his power to go uh, heal and cast out unclean spirits. And so they had done it before, but for some reason they were not able to cast this unclean spirit out of the boy. Verse 19, And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now there's something interesting going on here, and we'll see it at the end of this passage, but there seems to be degrees of uncleanness or degrees of power within these spirits. So that the same thing that they had done with spirits successfully, now they cannot do with the level of faith that they currently have. And Jesus will say to them, oh, you faithless generation. He's not giving up on them, but what he's pointing to is a fact that there's a kind of faith that they've yet to experience that they will need to encounter the increasing severity of evil in the world. And they're not there yet. So he says, bring them to me. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into water, to destroy him. And then listen carefully to what he says. This is the father speaking. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And look at what Jesus says back to him, verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, you see, he's, he's repeating what the man's, if, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. If you can? Jesus is almost playfully retorting, if I can, I can do anything for the one who believes. And the father gets it. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of him, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, do we not, or why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind, see that degree, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now this last line, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but, but when you read this, it might be interesting. Well, did that mean that they weren't using prayer in any other instance before? Did they not know that prayer was important? Of course not. I think prayer had always been a part of 
the process they had used. They realized they were working with a power that was not their own. But I think what Jesus is pointing to here is, is this kind of direct connection with the true source of power, which is God the Father, that for some reason these disciples could not tap into. And the way you tap into it is through prayer. Prayer is just being connected, communicating with God the Father. And they, for some reason, had sort of you know, a bad connection. And he's saying only pure prayer with a perfect connection can cast out this kind of powerful spirit. And you don't have it yet. And, and I would assume, uh, we don't know this for sure, but I would assume this kind of spirit can only be cast out once the problem of sin is dealt with for these disciples. That actually the reason Jesus will continue, and we'll see right after this, he'll predict again that he has to go to Jerusalem to die and to rise again. That this kind of power, this kind of evil, this depth of sin in the world can only be dealt with after you have had the problem of sin restored in you. So for the disciples, they don't have and they won't, won't have perfect communication with the source of, of power to cast this kind of demon out until Jesus dies for them and rises again. Okay? So there we are. And right, right in the heart of this story is, is this favorite verse of mine. I believe, help my unbelief. This, this refrain, this anthem, I believe, help my unbelief, this is the human anthem. This is the story of everyone. This is the story of me. This is the story of you. This is the story of anyone who's ever believed and anybody who will believe. And after you believe, it continues to be your story. And anybody that tells you that it's not is in trouble. We are always crying out, I believe God, help my unbelief. And I was just looking back at some old emails. I was trying to find an email and I typed in ring and all these old emails that I had popped up back from when I was dating my wife, Allie. And I hadn't looked at these emails for a long time. And I was emailing between, it was me and her sister, Meredith, who was living in Germany at the time, playing professional soccer, and we were planning a trip. I'd only been dating Allie for three months, and we were planning a trip to go see Meredith play. And I thought, man, I was so in love with Allie. Three months in, I was still on the honeymoon. It was good. I was like, I'm going to marry this girl. I believed it. And so I was emailing with Meredith, let's plan a very romantic European engagement. And so me and Meredith were emailing back and forth, and it was so funny reading back. I, I forget how serious I was. I forgot how much I had written and how much planning had gone in and how many times I had visited the jeweler and I knew the ring that I wanted and the cut I wanted, and, and I was reading back through all of that. And then at the very end of the email chain, it's, uh, I sent an email to Meredith. I said, I'm not sure it's going to work. <laughs> I said, Allie has started to drop some not-so-subtle hints that she wants to date me a little bit longer before <laughs> we get engaged. And, and Allie claims she didn't know that I've been talking to Meredith, and Meredith claims that she didn't let Allie into it, but you never know with sisters, okay? <laughs> and so it was so sad. I was, it was like a, it was very sheepishly, I was like, I don't think it's a good idea. 
And I said to Meredith, I said, don't worry. It'll happen soon. We'll just have to do it in America. And America's all right, but it'll be good. And so I said that at the very end of the email, and I told Meredith, I said, uh, and I'll still make sure you get to be a part of it. So I sent that in March 2000, let's see, what is it, 2010. I didn't actually propose to Allie until November 2012. Another year and a half after I was so sure, I believed with all my being that this was the woman I'd spend the rest of my life with. And then it took me a year and a half to finally pull the trigger. What's going on? Well, when you read back, or, or maybe you read back through a journal or something, or you just look back on your life, what you realize is, is life is just like this. It's this vacillating between belief and unbelief in lots of things. And usually with the things of greatest concern like love and marriage and relationship, that belief and unbelief can be even more violent. And so oftentimes, you know, you'll talk to Christians and, and they'll say, well, you know, I just believe and I just know and I've always known. But if you look back at their journal, if you look back at their emails, what you'd see is that even though their belief might be strong now, there was a time when it felt like the water levels were pretty close between belief and unbelief. And there might have been real times where the well was real dry on belief, and it was full in unbelief. And back and forth they went. That's the story of my life. That's the story of my life. My guess is that's the story of most of your lives as well. So let's do a bit of philosophical jamming, not like the peanut butter and jamming, but like a three-piece jazz band. That's what I like to jam, if you don't know that. Blues in particular. Last week we talked about Jesus' transfiguration and it says he revealed himself to Peter, James, and John and his clothes transformed, metamorphosized into a white that they had never seen before. A white that was so brilliant, that was so bright that no launderer on earth could recreate. That's, that's what the passage said last week. There was this light about him and this is consistent with definitions of God throughout the Bible, that God himself is wrapped in holiness, which looks a lot like unapproachable light. In the first letter that the Apostle John, who was one of those disciples that was there at the Transfiguration, in the first chapter of his letter to a bunch of Christian churches, he summed up the Christian message this way. He said, this is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay? So what is darkness? Is it a thing in and of itself? Is there such thing as darkness apart from light is my question. And I think the answer is no. Darkness is only the absence of light. Does that make sense? So darkness is not this, this thing. It's not this yin and this yang with light. 
It's not like two cosmic forces uh, and they're battling it out to see who wins. It's that God is light. God is everything. God has created everything. And in those places where God has not taken his unapproachable light, you know what? There's shadow and there's darkness. And yes, it's a thing that we can recognize and we know that that's dark and, and that's light. But darkness only gets to be because light is waning. Okay? Augustine, C.S. Lewis, many others uh, will say the same thing of evil. So what is evil? Is evil a thing that sort of pre-existed with God? No, of course not. God is good. God in himself is the definition of good. And evil is just the absence or the privation of good. Just like light and darkness. You see that? So God didn't create evil. He made everything good. But he gave that good the ability to fall short of the goodness for which it was created. And when it does, we recognize that as not good. We call it evil. And in many ways, the greater the good, the greater the potential for evil, right? I mean, we know that with our own strengths and weaknesses, right? I could ask any one of you, what is your greatest strength? And you'd tell me. And then, and then I'd ask you, what's your greatest weakness? Well, actually, it's when my greatest strength goes wrong, right? That's the way it works in God's world. He has created everything with a capacity for goodness. And when it falls short of that, we recognize its shortness and we see that it is evil, that it is not good. This is the exact same way that I look at the dance between belief and unbelief. God has given humanity this great capacity to believe things which transcend them. We can believe in love. We can believe in beauty. We can believe in the future. We can believe in great truth that is bigger than us. God has given us, it's a great gift, that we can grasp those things, but we grasp them by believing in them. And just like light, impure or restricted, leads to darkness, and good, undone or perverted, leads to evil, so does belief, polluted or uninspired or misappropriated, leads to unbelief. So I want you to think of a balloon. Great balloons here today. If you've been around Sedaris, you know I have a fascination with balloons. I can't really explain it. They just make great sermon illustrations. So I want you to think of a balloon. Now I want you to think about this category of good and evil again, okay? So God created uh, everything, and in each thing has sort of an unexpanded capacity for good, like a balloon does. Now, in reality, some people's unexpanded balloons have more space. They're, they're bigger than others, maybe more capacity. That's also why some people have more capacity for evil. So picture a balloon, unexpanded, and your job, and really the job of everything that God has created, is to be filled up 
with the goodness for which that was intended. So the balloon is to be expanded, to, make, to be made full, and in being made full, it will bring glory to the creator of the balloon as it is expanded to its limits, inflated to perfection, shining a light back on its creator. But the same gifts that fill that balloon with air, that expand it, are the gifts that can be used contrary to its intent and can actually steal air from the balloon, can actually deflate the balloon. So if I meant to say sing praises, like Marcy, think of Marcy up here. I, clearly she's been given a gift of a voice to praise God Almighty and to lead others to praise God Almighty. Now she could use that same gift either to fill her balloon, which brings God, God's glory, or she could use it to promote herself, to sing untruths, to sing against God, to worship anything other. And it actually steals from the balloon which it was meant for. You could say it can create unglory. It's another way of talking about evil. Now think of this balloon in terms of belief and unbelief. God has given us a capacity to believe all things because he says all things are possible for those who believe. Right here in the passage, he tells the man, all things are possible for those who believe. Any, any balloon can be filled for those who believe. He's saying that when your belief is fully inflated, you're capable of doing literally anything. And another point in the Gospels, we read Jesus telling his disciples about this crazy capacity when he says, truly I say to you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done. Jesus literally believes that the disciples, if their belief balloon was fully inflated, they would have the capacity to tell a mountain to jump into the sea. And he's not exaggerating because Jesus knows what is possible for those who believe. But unfortunately, we never have seen a mountain cast into the sea by pure belief. Why, why is that? Well, because we live in a world, in a time, in God's history in which the land is a mix of light and dark, which there's good and evil, which there's belief and unbelief, both in the world and in our own soul. So I don't expect to ever see somebody cast a mountain into the sea but it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen if we could somehow access the pure belief that Jesus is speaking of here. Now, what are those things? What is the air that fills up this balloon? What is the air that makes our belief grow and that sort of anti-space, which we might call unbelief, go away? Because you see, as the balloon fills the unbelief disappears. What are those things? Well, I think what we see here from this story and, and time and time again is there is nothing like the presence of Jesus. Here you've got a father 
who is far away, he believes enough to pick up his son and go see this Jesus that he's heard so much about. And then he gets to, to, to the town, and Jesus is actually up on the mountain, and it's just his disciples, but these people are really close to Jesus, and we've heard that they've been able to do, to use Jesus' power to do things. Uh, but you see his belief begins to wane, because he's like, the disciples can't cast this out. Nobody can. Because the disciples aren't Jesus himself. But then Jesus says, bring him to me. And it's back in the presence, the unfiltered presence of Jesus, that the man begins to come out of that unbelief that has been stealing air out of his hopes for his son, his desire. And the presence of Jesus begins to fill him back up with a belief that all things are possible for those who believe. In our world today, there are a billion things that will steer, steal away this pure air that comes from knowing and communing with the real presence of Jesus. And one of those things is an impure experience of Jesus, and, and many have experienced this. Many have gone to churches, been involved in churches, been around Christians, and they look at them, these supposed disciples of Jesus, and it begins to rob their belief. Because they say, how could I believe and worship and praise the God who these people worship? That's a fair question. And the first thing I just want to say is, if that's been your experience as sort of a representative of the church, I apologize, but I don't apologize for the truth here that that you need the real thing. Don't reject Jesus because the disciples don't have the power to do everything that he does. Jesus never said, the church will save you. He says, I'll save you. You know the saying, uh, don't waste your breath? This is the other thing that can steal away that fresh air of belief. When we decide to believe in things that are beyond ourselves, but are not God Almighty, when we pursue alternate uh, experiences or truths, it can actually steal our breath away. Does that make sense? Uh, So it's like we have this capacity that God's given us to believe in things transcendent beyond ourselves. And if we use that energy for something other than what it was intended, we don't get that breath back. So so here's how it's happened in my life. In my 20s, before I met Allie, I would spend all of my belief, energy, and air believing in this romantic notion of the one. And I just had to find her. And once I found her, my life would be full, and I'd never be unhappy again. And I believed it. I mean, I would, have convinced, I, would have, I would have locked the door and convinced you that this was true, that there was a perfect woman for me. I believed in this magical idea. It consumed me, and I wasted my breath on it. And I didn't have the energy to believe in God in the way that I should have for the things that he would have wanted to use that energy for because I was using my belief in the matters of love. This transcendent thing beyond me and I used it there. 
Some of you, it might be a great capacity to believe in, in the laws of nature and science and technology, and you study these things, and you love these things, and you use your capacity to believe in these transcendent ideas, and your energy is spent there. And it actually is not just sort of distracting you, it's actually taking away capacity to believe in God himself. Now, this doesn't mean that science and God and nature are at odds. It's the opposite. They're in cahoots. God's designed it all. And we can actually find the transcendent truth of God through nature, through science, through technology. But when we use our energy to pursue those truths over and above God, we waste our breath. And no wonder it's hard to believe on top of all of that, these other things. Now, if you get the order right, if you believe in God and use your energy to fill your balloon, it will actually multiply your ability to believe everything else, the way God's designed nature, the truths that we can grasp using our mind and religion, or sorry, our mind and science, good things like philosophy and medicine and education and even religion itself can be recovered for us and no longer take the wind out of ourselves, but actually help us to believe in the one true thing we were meant to believe, the transcendent truth of God Almighty, his love for us, his capacity and desire to save, and that he's done it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If your hearts are wrestling with this concept, if you say, well, that's unhelpful, that's just easy believism, I can't waste my breath on God because I, I need every breath I have to find a cure, to educate the uneducated, to save morality from religion, I'm sorry to say, you will fall short. You, you will fall short of everything you hope to do because it always starts with Jesus. He says, if I can, of course I can. All things are possible. <clears throat> Big things, yes, have been accomplished by those who have used their capacity to believe in other realms, in other faiths, without Jesus, yes, Amazing, wonderful, things that should be celebrated. But, but my response to that objection goes something like this. With tears, I say, imagine what could have been accomplished if they had just believed in God first. God, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the story of every single Christian, every person who chooses to believe in God. This is their story. And if it's not, you're setting yourself up for your balloon to burst because sometimes we can even believe too much about God, unnecessary beliefs, which when they're exposed as false, might burst our balloon. For instance, predicting when Jesus will come back. Thinking that if we give to God that he must surely give back to us in the exact same way and a hundredfold. 
People really believe that stuff, but it's not meant to be believed. And when it's shown to be false, it might just kill all other belief. Now, if you have believed once in your life and you felt like you were riding on wings of eagles like God promises and that the breath of life and the breath of faith was in you and then there came a time of lowness, of unbelief, and you've wondered, did I believe in vain? Let me be very clear. The answer is no. You didn't believe in vain. But you must keep moving. Unbelief usually results from the absence of experiences with the real Jesus. It's not something that you figure out apart from him and then come in. So usually unbelief will only grow if you don't keep moving, if you don't keep pressing into experiences with Jesus. That is why the Christian life is one of routine and consistency Week in, week out, day in and day out, getting into the presence of Jesus and his word to listen to him, to hear from him, to experience his presence because that is the only thing that keeps your faith growing and unbelief shrinking. God is a God of belief, not unbelief. So you can't get belief by just reducing unbelief. You only get, reduce unbelief by growing your belief. So how do I combat this creeping in of unbelief? The first is a preventative measure. Expect the expected, okay? We experience the presence, the truth, the reality of God, and we believe, but we are spring-loaded to go right back to unbelief as soon as things get hard, as soon as we stop moving forward towards God. We're spring-loaded. We'll always go back. It's just in our blood to go back. And if we expect that, we'll be able to get through it. Any football fans in the room? Right? We always say that of great quarterbacks. We say, like, they've just got this ability to keep going even when they throw an interception, even when the scoreboard's against them. What is it? What's, what is it is they don't expect to never face a deficit. They don't expect for the tank to never be low. They always expect it. They always expect to throw interceptions. And when it happens, it's expected. And it doesn't shatter them. So you should expect it. If you're believing, if you're on a mountaintop right now, believe that there's coming a moment where you won't be. Where unbelief creeps back in, expect it, recognize it, know the cure, get near Jesus, get near his people, double down on community, double down on God's word, double down on listening to praise music, double down on whatever for you helps, come, helps you come near to Jesus because you've expected the deficit to come. Don't throw in the towel. You will find your way back. And if you've ever thought this question... Well, God, you showed yourself so amazingly to me. I've seen your splendor and your wonder, uh, and, and I walked away. If that's your story, and, and you hear this voice in your head, there's no way God could ever love me again after what I walked away from, after I've backslid. There's no forgiveness for me now that I've seen the riches of his glory and chosen the riches of this world. That's not true. 
that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. Stick to God's game plan, even when you throw an interception. God knows that this will happen. If you read his word, he tells us it will happen. It happened to the disciples. It happened to Israel. It happens to every single person who walks with God. There comes a time where the unbelief seems more powerful than the belief. But it's not because it's not a thing in and of itself. It's just the absence of belief. But we can get more of that by getting close to Jesus. All things are possible. Not some things. All things are possible for those who believe. Second way to avoid this creeping feeling is the simple, make, make this one of your favorite verses in the Bible. The anthem, I believe, help my unbelief. And the reason this is so important, particularly in our day and age, is that we live in a land of cynicism. Cynicism says this, you dare not believe in anything. In her book, The Death of Adam, Marilyn Robs, uh, Robison Uh, Robinson explains cynicism of our times in this way. When a good man or woman stumbles, we say, I knew it all along. When a bad man or woman does something gracious, we sneer at the hypocrisy. I myself am a recovering cynic. You probably are too because you grew up in this land at this time. We cheer cynics. We put them up on stage We love their honesty. We applaud them for calling it out. We're told that we're courageous if we disbelieve anything our parents taught us. We're told to be courageous and not believe the experience we had at camp, but disbelieve. We're called courageous if we disbelieve anyone who's earning a living for trying to teach us a great truth. In our natural man, we long for emancipation from belief. We want to be removed from it. We don't want it in our lives because we feel like, just like God, if we could be emancipated from him and not need him and not depend to need to depend, then we'd be free to live the good life. How's that working for you? Jesus said the opposite. He said the truly emancipated life is no life at all. In fact, it's a prison of the self. And the only thing you're emancipating yourself from is joy and peace and security and help. Think of the irony. To love our lack of belief more than belief itself is like loving our lack of light more than light itself or loving our lack of goodness more than goodness itself. When we emancipate ourselves from all belief, that's cynicism, we are doomed to a life emancipated from any good that can only be gained by belief. Most notably, true love, both between human beings and between us and God. Jesus says, don't emancipate yourself from God's love and authority and guidance But full, true life is made possible by supernatural belief that connects you to the presence and the power and the goodness of my son Jesus. A life surrounded by the nearness of God, fully dependent on him. That is the good life 
and it requires belief. So you need to start fighting unbelief. You need to fight against cynicism. You need to stop listening to the world that says believing in anything is somehow uncourageous. Now, this is important. We don't change first when we're fighting sin, death, disease. We don't change first and then believe. We always believe first and then are changed. Uh, And so it's not like you have to fix yourself up to get to a place to believe. All you do is you come near to Jesus and you pray the simple prayer. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then you pray it again. Jesus, I believe enough to come before you. Help my unbelief. This is the essential human anthem. Every single day I pray. I believe God. Help my unbelief. For every moment of apparent unbelief, God's world is pregnant with the possibility of a greater moment of belief. All this in every suffering of life do I pray. I believe Help my unbelief. As if you were staring at this unscalable rock face and you just start by putting one foot and one hand in the holds and you say, I believe, help my unbelief. And then you put the next hand, I believe, help my unbelief. And soon enough, you've surmounted the insurmountable. Against every sin you wrestle to be free from, you pray, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Your sin does not define you. Your belief in the conquering Savior does. For all hope and future joy, you pray, I believe, God, help my unbelief. This is the anthem we cry out. And it doesn't make us weak. It doesn't make our faith small to pray this prayer. It makes it honest. And in honesty is power. And in power is the person of Jesus. And on that day, when you, like that little dead, seemingly dead, lifeless boy, on that day when the cynics stroll by your grave and they mock you forever believing, look, it happened to him too. Jesus, in all his power and dominion and glory, And victory on the cross and by the resurrection, on that day, he'll grab hold of your hand and he'll lift you up past all unclean spirits, all sin, all effects of the body and the soul, and he'll raise you up to a new eternal life in his perfect presence, unfiltered majesty and splendor. And all that believing that you so diligently prayed for day in and day out, all that you believed in because it was beyond your tangible reach, all that you refused to disbelieve just for convenience sake, all of that will then make your new reality no longer just an idea to be believed in, but it'll be something that you can feel and touch and hold on to as you rest finally from all unbelief in the glorious halls of your Savior's house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the belief that you've given us. God, we don't mock that. We don't pretend like it never happened. 
We don't question it. We just say, I remember when I believed. I remember the days of fullness when it felt like the air was fresh. God, I want those days back. Help my unbelief. In those moments, give me the strength to persevere. Give me the strength, God, to pray this simple prayer. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. And as we do that, we trust and we know that you are faithful to respond. That if we draw near to you, you will not step back. That you too will come and be near to us. For any who seek will find. We trust that. We believe that, Father God. For my friends in this room who are struggling with unbelief, help them know that unbelief is nothing compared to the power of belief possible in the presence of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.